that God himself has provided a way of salvation and eternal life for all who trust in his son Jesus for their salvation and thereby escape the wrath of God that we are due for our sins. As we have seen from the opening verses of this letter, Paul's focus is upon Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and what he has done to secure our salvation. Paul then stated his desire to come to Rome and to preach the gospel there. Why? Because as he states in chapter 1, verse 16... The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel message is the key that can unlock the door to salvation and eternal life with God. But why should we need a key? Why should we need salvation from God? Most people believe that they are good people. And they will go to heaven when they die. That is because they do not realize their own sinfulness. And they do not realize the absolute standard of holiness and righteousness that is required by God to enter into his presence. So starting in chapter 1, verse 18, and going all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul lays out for us why mankind, each and every one of us, so desperately need the salvation that God provides in order to escape the wrath of God that is due for our sins. In my last two sermons, we began this section of the letter In the first of those two, we learned that, quote, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and women. Romans 1.18. The idea of God pouring out his wrath upon sinful human beings is not very popular in our day, nor has it ever been. Then Paul begins to list reasons why this is true, starting with mankind's refusal to acknowledge God for who he is and to worship him as he deserves. Instead, they suppress the truth about God, that which he has revealed to them. And they become futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts are darkened. Paul writes, claiming to be wise, they become fools, worshiping anything but God. That's Romans 18, one, Romans 1, 18 to 23. Then in my last sermon, we looked at verses 24 to 32, where Paul tells us, That as a result of their sinful rebellion against him, God gives them over to their foolishness. He gives them over to their sin, to their sinful passions. 
Paul states that God gives them over to do what ought not be done. And all we have to do is look around us in this world today to see that is true. And then Paul gives us a list of some of the sins committed by them. In chapter 1, verses 29 to 32. Let me read that list just as a reminder to you. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Imagine that, inventing ways to do evil disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree and that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. In pursuing these sinful Pleasures and deeds, the depravity of sin is put on full display. But wait, what about those who are basically moral people? What about those who would never consider such blatant immoral behavior? They, in fact, look down on those who do such things. They are much better than the others. And they are so much better that they judge according to their own standards. What about them? Outwardly moral and upright, perhaps even religious, surely they do not need to fear God's righteous judgment, do they? In this next section of his letter, Paul addresses these very individuals. Here we will see what God thinks about those who are self-righteous and judge others. He will state that all human beings are, in fact, storing up God's wrath. That God is absolutely just and impartial in his righteous judgment of sinners And that a day of righteous judgment is coming for all who refuse to turn to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and thereby escape the wrath of God that they are due. So for those of you that are able, please stand for the reading of the first part of our text. I'm going to be reading from Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. May God bless the reading of his word to us. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? 
Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. May God bless his word to us. You may be seated. So after listing the terrible sins that result from turning our back to God and his commands, Paul now addresses those who are self-righteous, those who see themselves as moral individuals who would never commit such sins as Paul has listed. Paul's focus here is upon those who judge others but fail to judge themselves. This was all too common then as it still is today. It draws out the fact that most people think more highly of themselves than they ought to and have a hard time seeing and admitting their own sinfulness. But God does see and knows the sin in their hearts, and he justly condemns them for it. In this passage, we will see three characteristics of the self-righteous, supposedly moral person. First, they do not understand the nature of sin. They imagine that because they have not actually committed one of the principal sins, that they will escape judgment. But the truth is, they have committed these sins in their heart and mind. Remember, this was one of the focuses of Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Let me remind you of that. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. Jesus speaking here. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus says, it's not just committing that sin openly and outwardly, it's committing that sin in your own heart. God knows. All of our thoughts, all of our desires, all of our motivations. And then he goes on in chapters 20, uh, verse 5, chapters 20, uh, verses 27 and 28. You heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks upon a person with lustful intent has already committed adultery in their heart. It's more than just being outwardly sinful. It's being inwardly sinful. They may not have murdered, but have they hated? They may not have committed adultery or been in a homosexual relationship, but have they lusted after another person? They may never have stolen, but have they coveted something that someone else had? They may not have lied, but maybe they've stretched the truth or not told the whole truth. 
They may not gossip, but do they talk about others behind their back? They may never curse outwardly, but do they curse inwardly? God sees and knows all our sins. He is not deceived by our indulging in self-righteous delusion by renaming or recategorizing our personal sins. The self-righteous have an intrinsic blindness to their own faults. It's a part of our human nature, our fallen nature. They do not see that they are doing the same things for which they are condemning others. This leads to the second characteristic of the self-righteous, supposedly moral person. They are judgmental, sometimes to the extreme. Because they see themselves as moral and righteous, they will come across to others as judgmental and better than others. This is not only true of many self-righteous unbelievers, but it's also true of those who profess to be religious, even some who profess to be followers of Christ. And listen, there are few things more destructive to the spread of the gospel than this. It is a fact that if we have a sensuous, self-righteous, judgmental attitude, others will sense it without us even saying a word. They will see it in our face. They will hear it in the tone of our voice. And they will not want to hear what we have to say. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. We are not in ourselves holier than anyone else. We are sinners. And if we are saved, it's by God's grace, not because we're better than others. The last characteristic of the self-righteous moral person is that they presume that God approves of them. Look at verse 4 with me again. Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness towards you is not a stamp of approval on your life. These self-righteous individuals actually presume that because their lives are good or comfortable, that God approves of them and does not care about their sinfulness. They wrongly believe that their sin is acceptable before God. And in so doing, Paul says they are presuming on the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience that is actually extended to all of mankind. The famous commentator Matthew Henry wrote this, quote, There is in every willful sin a contempt for the goodness of God. Every intentional sin presumes upon God's kindness, forbearance, and patience. Is God kind to us? Amen. Is God forbearing and patient with us? Amen. Hallelujah. But when we deliberately, with foreknowledge, sin against God, 
We are presuming on that kindness and patience and forbearance. God is unbelievably kind, forbearing and patient with all of mankind because this is meant to lead us to repentance, not to continue in sin. Kindness refers to the benefits that God gives. Forbearance refers to the judgment that he withholds for a time and patience to the duration of both. For long periods of time, the Lord is kind and forbearing. That is God's common grace or providence that he graciously extends to sinful humanity. But make no mistake, judgment for sin is coming. It's coming for all who do not repent and trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. In fact, Paul goes on in the text to tell us that sinners are storing up wrath with every sin. Look at verse 5 with me again. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is the second time in this letter that Paul has mentioned the wrath of God. The first, first time, as I read earlier, was in chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. You may not know this, but Paul will go on in this letter to mention the wrath of God 13 more times. In this one letter, 15 times total. Why? Because the wrath of God is a very real thing. And we need to be aware of it. It is the inevitable result of sin. Even when we do not experience it immediately, it does not mean that it does not exist. He states clearly that for those with a hard and impenitent heart, impenitent meaning a failure to repent of our sin, they are storing up the wrath of God, which will be poured out upon them on the day of wrath when God judges all sinners who have failed to repent and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Make no mistake, God's wrath is earned and deserved by sinners who reject God and the way of salvation that he has provided for them. Note also that the wrath of God is proportionate to human sin in the sense that those who sin much will be punished much and those who sin less will be punished less. Now exactly how that works out we cannot be sure of but I don't think we want to find out ourselves. God has revealed this to us. He's revealing this to you right now so that we might repent, call out to Jesus for salvation and be saved by Him from the wrath of God that is to come for all who fail to do so. Praise be to God for revealing these things to us by His grace, and bringing us to repentance. Amen? Now this brings us to the last part of our text for today, 
which emphasizes that God's judgment will be just and impartial. Let me read verses 6 through 11. You can follow along if you'd like. God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for the glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. When we do appear before God, God will judge with perfect equity. God shows no partiality. This means God is not swayed by appearances or external matters. Neither beauty nor wealth nor achievement nor family impresses God. He will render to each one according to their works. This is in full agreement with Jesus' statement in Matthew 16, 27, where Jesus said, God will repay each person according to what he has done. Paul then describes the judgment of God of the redeemed and of the unredeemed. Those who have repented and trusted in Christ and those who have not. Their lives, how they live, and what they pursue as goals will show their relationship to God. In verse 7, he describes those redeemed by Christ. Those who seek after God's glory and honor and seek after the immortality that is promised by God for all who trust in Him. And he tells us they will be judged by God and they will receive the eternal life that they have been promised. Praise be to God. In verse 8, he describes those not redeemed by Christ, those who are self-seeking, who do not obey God's truth, but instead practice unrighteousness. They will be judged by God, and they will receive the wrath and fury of God just as they deserve. Praise God. Then in verses 9 to 11, Paul stresses the impartiality of God. All who reject Jesus, all who fail to repent of their sin and continue to live sinfully will receive the just penalty, tribulation and distress. Whether they're Jewish or non-Jewish. All who repent and trust in Christ for their salvation will then live lives focused on doing good in the sight of God, and they will receive glory and honor from God. This applies to all. All. Every single human being on the face of the earth. For God shows no partiality. God is just, and He is impartial. 
Paul emphasizes here that we will all give an account before God for our deeds and for our goals. What are we seeking after? What do you seek after? If you seek after selfish gain, you may attain it in this life, but then face God's wrath on the day of judgment. But if you seek after God, His ways, His favor, through faith in His Son, then He will grant you eternal life in His Son. Again, all men and women will have to face Him one day. And by His grace, He patiently grants people a lifetime to prepare for that moment. Now, none of us knows the length of that lifetime. Granted, But God is being patient that we might repent and trust in Christ for our salvation. We should not delay in pursuing the eternal life that can be ours through faith in Christ. Now in the next few verses, Paul continues on this theme of the impartiality of God's righteous judgment. Now he focuses on His righteous judgment in relationship to God's law. Let me read from verses 12 to 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Since God is impartial, His judgment will be just towards those who know His written law and to those who do not. Well, how can that be true? How can that be fair? Because God, listen to me, God has written His law upon the hearts and minds of all mankind. This is what theologians refer to as natural law or moral law. This is in fact one of the strongest arguments for a creator. Because human beings throughout all of human history from every tribe and tongue and nation have a moral compass. They know that murder is evil. They know that rape is evil. All mankind has a moral compass because God has given to all. All know good from evil. All have a conscience that condemns them when they do wrong, when they commit sin. Therefore, God judges both Jews and non-Jews by the moral standards of His law that have been revealed to them. 
Again, he is fair. He is equitable. He is just. He's going to judge them against the moral law that they've been given, that they're aware of. So those who have and know the written law of God will be judged according to what they know. Those who only have God's law written on their hearts by God will be judged accordingly. Either way, Paul makes it very clear that hearing and knowing is not enough. Let me say that again. Hearing and knowing God's law is not enough. It is only those who are doers of the law who will be justified. Only those who keep every part of God's law perfectly can be justified by law keeping. How many of us have done that? None. How many human beings have done that? One. Only the sinless Son of God, Jesus, has perfectly obeyed God. And we will get back to that in a few minutes. How can we be certain that there are none other who are righteous? How can we be certain that there are none other who do good at all times? Well, the Word of God tells us so. Flip one page over to Romans chapter 3. And let me read verses 10 through 12 to you. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Paul's here quoting from the Old Testament. But guess what? Still true in our day today, and it always has been. So how many will be justified and declared righteous before God for being doers of the law? Only Jesus. God's judgment cannot be any more impartial. All are guilty of sin. And of course, we will read that in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. No one is perfectly righteous. No one does good perfectly, not even one. All have sinned, therefore all will be judged by God and all will suffer the wrath of God that is due for their sins unless they repent of their sins and call upon Jesus Christ for salvation from the wrath of God that they deserve. Remember, God's wrath will be proportional to the sin. So, do you want what you've got coming to you? No, I don't think so. They must repent of their sins, call upon Jesus Christ for salvation from the wrath of God. But how does that work? Well, I'm so glad you asked that. 
There is a way of escape from God's wrath. In this very letter, after Paul spends over two chapters explaining the sinfulness of mankind and the righteous judgment of God and the wrath of God being poured out upon all who deserve it, he then spends over two chapters explaining how Christ came to save all who trust in him from the wrath of God that they are due. So, turn over two pages to Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 6 through 11. Paul writes, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. Verse 8, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from, what? The wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. So look back at verse 8. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Because Christ was the sinless Son of God, but also fully human in His incarnation and without sin, He was able to be our substitute. Paul will later write to the Corinthians that He who knew no sin, that is Christ, became sin on our behalf. Our sin was transferred to Him, was credited to Him. All of those sins that we've committed, known and unknown by our neighbors, but known by God. Every last sin transferred to Jesus if we trust in Him for our salvation. He pays the penalty for those sins. God's wrath is poured out upon His own Son. The full measure of His wrath that was due for those sins. We are justified by His blood. Justified just as if I'd never sinned. We're credited with the righteousness of Christ. And we are saved by Christ from the wrath of God, reconciled to God by the death of His Son. This is so incredible. Listen to me. No one could make this up. That God would come and become a man and die in the place of sinful men and women so that they could be set free 
from what they deserve? Incredible, isn't it? It's amazing grace, isn't it? Amazing. So we have learned today that all people are sinners, whether they consider themselves moral people or not. And so all people are storing up for themselves God's holy wrath that is due for their sins. We've also seen that all people will be subject to the just and impartial judgment of God. The only ones who will escape the wrath of God that is due unto them are those who repent and trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. They will experience eternal life with Him rather than eternal conscious punishment for their sins. We who know these truths should act accordingly. We should rejoice in the love, mercy, and grace that God has bestowed upon us by revealing these truths to us. And we should rejoice in the salvation that has been provided for us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And we should now live our lives, as Paul said, to the glory and honor of Christ. And we should take every opportunity to tell others about this glorious gift that can be theirs through faith in Christ. For all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen? Let's pray.